Hello, and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. Now over a decade old, the entire crypto industry is reeling from a brutal year of 2022. Bitcoin, the leading cryptocurrency, is down roughly 75% from its peak. According to data from Crunchbase, global funding for VC-backed crypto startups was down 50% in the third quarter of 2022. In the past eight months, we have witnessed the collapse of many crypto-specific businesses and an ensuing drainage in both institutional and retail liquidity, as well as slowing participation, which is typical of periods with heightened risk aversion and skepticism. Against this backdrop, crypto faces heightened criticism and existential questions. I regard such questions as entirely valid and necessary. I would like this podcast to be an opportunity to hear their arguments against crypto in a structured and thoughtful manner. My guest today is Stephen Deal. Stephen is an entrepreneur and software engineer. His area of expertise is in functional programming language design and financial technology services. More importantly for our conversation today, Stephen is an outspoken crypto skeptic and author of many writings. In his book titled Popping the Crypto Bubble, published earlier this year, he argues that crypto is still a solution in search of a problem. He makes a very strong case that it is not building a new financial system or a new internet. He points out that crypto is not an asset uncorrelated with the market and does not hedge against inflation. He posits that crypto is instead a vehicle for pure, naked speculation detached from anything in the economy. Before we begin, let me set the framework for our conversation and provide some background for my thought process. Stephen's book, Popping the Crypto Bubble, features a quote from L. Ron Hubbard, science fiction author and founder of the Church of Scientology. The quote says, you don't get rich writing science fiction. If you want to get rich, you start a religion. This immediately made me think of Pascal's wager. Pascal was a French mathematician, philosopher, physicist, and theologian who argued that a rational person should live as though God exists and seek to believe in God. He explained that if God does not exist, such a person will have only a finite loss, whereas if God does exist, they stand to receive infinite gains as represented by eternity in heaven and avoid infinite losses and eternity in hell. As any fundamental and potentially transformative technology, crypto requires a strong belief system akin to faith that makes miraculous promises of wealth. Mathematically, it should make sense to follow Pascal's wager and invest in crypto. That is what most crypto enthusiasts around the world inherently do. However, there are many conditions under which Pascal's wager doesn't hold. In particular, religious pluralism leads to a high probability of believing in the wrong god, which eliminates the wager's mathematical advantage. Bitcoin, the inception of crypto as we know it, was about abandoning the system of social and political trust underpinning the modern monetary system that has evolved over centuries and replacing it with cryptographic proof. There is a common theme of wrestling ownership and control over one's financial destiny back from governments and the powerful interests that lobby them. Along the way, the initial Bitcoin monotheism gave way to polytheism as new disciples pushed their own religion and associated narratives. So crypto became this hodgepodge of mutually inductive yet vastly different beliefs. In popping the crypto bubble, Stephen and his co-authors make a strong case that crypto is for the most part a form of failed religious pluralism. They argue against commonly held views that crypto creates a new monetary system or an investable asset class, highlight its shortcoming as a technology, and debunk the myth of the ownership economy. 
In their mind, the claim that crypto is mostly a gambling scheme, enabled by a speculative cohort of trading venues, venture capitalist firms, and hedge funds, is likely the most defendable. Hence, market fundamentalism would likely represent a majority of interest and activity in crypto, and only in this case would Pascal wagers hold. Stevens' only objection to this ideology is that he believes it is a social net negative. Stevens' presence on my podcast is not necessarily reflective of my own views, nor is our conversation a debate on the merits of his arguments, or crypto for the matter. However, after reading his numerous essays and his recent book, I felt that his approach would help contribute to broadening our listeners' understanding of the topic through a different set of lenses. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm a working software engineer. I've been working in the industry for about 15 years now, usually at the intersection of what I would call information technology and financial services. So I happen to be somebody who happens to straddle both finance, economics, computer science, and crypto happens to be the sort of the happy or unhappy confluence of all three of those fields. And over the last, I'd say, two and a half years, I've become one of the more outspoken critics of the crypto industry. Um, I started writing a series of blog posts that I thought reflected what was sort of the internal industry consensus among working computer scientists and software engineers that was not being reflected in what I saw as sort of the mainstream media, the Bloombergs and the uh, you know, CNBCs of the world. Um, and that gained me quite a bit of um, <laughs> quite a bit of a sort of niche readership among a lot of um, financial services professionals and regulators. And ever since then, I've been sort of the go-to person, the media's conto to get the contrarian perspective on crypto. And this year, just as the entire industry started collapsing, uh, I authored a book with two other um, authors called Popping the Crypto Bubble, which I think is a sort of intellectual deconstruction of what I see as the financial, economic, and technical absurdities that crypto rests on. Great. Well, thank you. My point in having you today is to set the stage uh, for you to be able to explain your thoughts and, and your views on crypto. And as we'll come to cover, crypto means many different things. And that's arguably one of its flaws. The lack of a single narrative is something that's very prevalent in, in all the work that you've done. So I thought, you know, maybe, you know, the way I looked at, at your, your book, uh, which again, I, I found very interesting in, in deconstructing it, you know, you and I had an exchange around this notion that you know, proponents of crypto very much take a view that you have to be in it, you have to be invested in it. And as you and I discussed, this brought us back to Pascal's wager, where essentially, if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in a religion, and if you don't have faith in the massively disruptive nature of this technology, then you're bound to miss out on an infinite payout. And what we're going to do today is deconstruct that and show that there isn't just one quote unquote religion. There are many different types of narratives, and we're going to go through each and every one of those and hear your thoughts on it. Can you talk a little bit about your take on the history of crypto? Sure. So the history of crypto, as much as some of its um, acolytes might like to profess that 2008 was this uh, sort of immaculate conception in which Bitcoin was birthed into the world, uh, purely formed. The reality is that it's sort of part of this long tail of innovation um, that synthesizes multiple threads that have been running through um, computer science and software engineering for about, oh, 20 years now. Um, so at the end of the day, um, Bitcoin, the first cryptocurrency, is a distributed database um, that basically contains records uh, that people can sell to each other. Uh, that Bitcoin is nothing more than an entry in a ledger at the end of the day. It just happens to be a distributed ledger. 
And this ledger is kept in sync um, through a network of computers, um, which maintain the coherence of this ledger and its consistency across the world, which means that everybody sees the same view. And in some ways, that's a very interesting idea. What uh, Satoshi um, did in 2008 was a, a very quirky solution to a problem that computer scientists have been looking at for almost 20 years now, which is if we have digital things, how can we make sure that um, they can't be copied and that only one person can, in some sense, own the digital thing? Um, this is what's known as the double spend problem. Um, and the cryptography that Bitcoin builds on um, grew out of work that was developed in the late 90s. Uh, it was called the Crypto Wars, um, which was this period in which computer scientists um, really fought a long series of legal battles with the US government around the export of cryptography. So think like encryption, things like ciphers, things that were used in military applications and used for the obfuscation of like military secrets. Um, so these were classified as like munitions. Um, and a lot of computer scientists had significant issues with that because they saw this as this pure piece of like math, this computer code. And so there was a series of high profile lawsuits in which um, cryptography was declassified as munitions and that gave rise to you know, the cryptography that you use in your banking infrastructure today. And largely today, cryptography is not classified as munition anymore. But at the same time, that um, ongoing debate between the computer science community and basically the US federal government created this sort of subculture of people, um, which broadly speaking had a very kind of, um, they were called cypherpunks. They had a very libertarian bent that saw that the state was this inherently um, adversarial entity that wanted to restrict them doing computer science. And a lot of them, you know, felt that uh, this was, you know, it's an hindrance on their field. And so this gave rise to this community of people um, that started looking at, well, solutions in which they could start creating their own parallel versions of the financial system. Um, and this has been based on the work of like philosophers like, you know, Friedrich Hayek um, for, you know, almost a century now. Um, and this idea of creating private money um, has resonated with certain different ideologies for almost 20 years now. And so this community basically existed in the early 90s and early 2000s um, and basically talked about these different conceptions about how we could build this sort of parallel financial system. And then in 2008, somebody actually actually built the first prototype of what was Bitcoin. And Bitcoin started out uh, as a alleged peer-to-peer -peer payment system that would not require any intermediaries. And in some ways it actually achieves that but the problem is that it rests on some economic and financial problems that don't actually allow it to achieve that end goal. But that's sort of the long history of where crypto goes. Um, it started off as a sort of libertarian project to build like a digital payment system that could not be censored by nation states and then worked up to the kind of Cambrian explosion of assets we see today. And, and this really leads into what you refer to as the cult of crypto, right? This common theme of libertarianism. You, you talk about also going back to our, our exchange around having you know, a set of faiths in the various narratives, right? The miraculous promise of wealth that's not derived from labor or economic activity, but purely on, on faith. So I, I wanted to deconstruct that because from an initial movement that's very much a resistance, you know, there's this underlying undercurrent theme of wrestling control away from governments, from the military, from all these authorities. What crypto is really based on this initial narrative of wrestling control away from that. So can you talk a little bit about 
how the cult of crypto developed over time and, and started morphing into not just one built on this initial narrative and started spawning you know, a variety of different narratives. We'll talk a little bit later about how that affected the economic theories behind the supporters of Bitcoin and crypto as a monetary system, for example. But let's first start with the root there. Absolutely. So I often say that the biggest innovation behind Bitcoin was not actually the technology itself. It was the fact that Satoshi was able to convince people that his database entries actually had any value to begin with. And that very much is kind of a leap of faith. Um, the fact that this you know, sequence of numbers that are stored in this distributed database should have any value to anybody um, requires a kind of you know, sort of Kierkegaardian leap of faith to actually conceptualize. Um, because from first principles, um, unlike a physical commodity or a nation state backed currency, um, the demand for crypto is generated purely by narrative. Um, it is the sort of purely intellectually uh, self-referential thing. Um, and in order for you to believe in that, uh, you have to sort of, from first principles, assume that Bitcoin has some value. And so in some ways, what crypto has morphed into um, is this sort of hermetically sealed ideology in which a bunch of people really truly from first principles have taken this leap of faith and said that you know, crypto and sort of these non-state backed private monies can actually exist, that the economics of them are actually sound, uh, that they can actually function as money or they can fulfill some other narratives. And over the last um, 14 years, um, we've seen this Cambrian explosion of assets just besides Bitcoin, which also have different narratives. And the thing about crypto is that the narratives around them change every six months. So crypto started off as a peer-to-peer payment system, then it became um, a store of value, a hedge against inflation, an asset uncorrelated with the market. Now it's building a parallel financial system. Now it's building a new version of the internet. And in my book, I try to deconstruct why all of these narratives, when you dig down into them intellectually, they don't actually hold much water. But um, there is this sort of, I'd say almost like Stalinist kind of cult of personality that's grown up around all these assets in which people really truly believe them and in some ways they become um self-fulfilling in the fact that like if enough venture capitalists believe that this thing is doing the thing it will attract enough people who will then have money to try to build the thing and that's where crypto takes on a very sort of like secular religious tone and i call that the cult of crypto and i don't mean that cults in a very pejorative sense because like there are good and bad cults right you can look at things like you know Scientology, like Heaven's Gate, as being like the more pathological ones. And then you can see like sort of the more positive cults being like, I don't know, CrossFit or certain nonprofits that like raise money for cancer or something. Those are good, right? And I don't mean to say that crypto is on the pejorative side. I said it happens to have some of the same sort of sociological and um, characteristics of cults, which is this leap of faith, um, this Milu control, these things called like thought terminating cliches. Um, and the sociology of this sort of groupthink is very cult-like in structure. It is. And what's interesting is on some level, you talk about this, this notion of a high control group, which is necessary for any of these quote unquote cults to emerge and thrive. That is building on, I think, a resentment or at least a narrative of resentment from people post great financial crisis around some of the policies that were put in place, A, to stem the collapse of the economy in 2008. We know the Genesis block on Bitcoin refers to a bank bailout. It's very much ingrained in the culture. And you start seeing with Occupy Wall Street in 2011, this sort of populist trend. 
But then, you know, what's interesting is this high control group. What is this high control group in your mind, right? Because there's a variety of different stakeholders. The irony is for a movement that comes from the shadows, from the underground, the cipher underground, um, ultimately a decade later has become a vastly commercial system, right? That is being led by the same stakeholders and participants. You talk about venture capitalists, hedge funds, trading firms that are, you know, in the populist mind, quote unquote, in cahoots with the governments, with the lobbies, with the politicians, with big money. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? And how is it that we've traveled this journey from this underground movement to this broad sort of hodgepodge of, of, of different agendas? It's been a strange evolution to watch. And if you know anything about Occupy Wall Street, which was this populist movement of people who were very upset about the, the bank bailouts in 2008, and they decided to basically park themselves down on Wall Street and like protest about the corruption of Wall Street banks. Um, crypto is sort of a parallel movement to that. Um, and where Occupy Wall Street took on sort of more of, a, I'd say, left American left of center kind of um, populist uprising movement, crypto sort of took a more libertarian slant and said, okay, uh, the actual solution to Wall Street is that we need to burn it all down. Um, and like a phoenix, this new system will arise from the ashes, free of the corruption that led to 2008. Except what happened over time is basically, imagine like this Occupy Wall Street you know, college students. Imagine if over time, over the next decade, all of those protesters suddenly morphed into hedge fund managers and became the very apotheosis of the corruption that they were looking to displace. And that's crypto in a nutshell. Um, you watch this morph from this sort of cypherpunk libertarian movement to being the very institutions that they were aiming to replace. They've created centralized institutions like FTX, which is excluded. They have become one of the largest lobbying um, forces in Washington, D.C. They donated more to both political parties in the United States last year than like the entire defense industry. Um, they have become the establishment and they're running through all of the exact same financial crisis or old structure of the financial crisis that we saw in 2008, except they've recreated it, you know, 12 years later. And so there's a kind of profound irony of this movement that is not lost on um, anybody. But you're right, you know, the entire movement itself is based on this notion of like financial populism, which is this conception that, you know, there's this, broadly speaking, there's this cabal of elites, um, which have corrupted our institutions to enrich themselves, broadly speaking. Um, and this takes on many different forms in our society. But financial populism asserts that, you know, the institutions themselves, the financial institutions um, need to be displaced and that we need to you know, put the people's solution in place so that the common man can, you know, be able to have a new place in this new order. And that's kind of the overarching theme of what I see as the underlying financial populism of crypto. Another point that you make on the part of some proponents is pure financial nihilism, right? It is to say, well, if everything's a Ponzi, if the U.S. government and the U.S. dollar and the U.S. monetary system is a giant Ponzi, then there's nothing wrong with running our own Ponzi and might as well be it being our own Ponzi than being some a Ponzi that we don't control. And can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So the most extreme form of financial populism is this form of financial nihilism. So nihilism is this philosophy, uh, sort of a non-philosophy, actually, in which nothing matters. Or, you know, we all just, you know, we live, we die. It's all sums nothing. Um, it's a very bleak view of the world. So applying that to finance, they take this sort of very extreme version of like the subjective theory of value, 
um, and assert that you know nothing in our lives has any value. Um, everything is basically just some sort of get rich quick scheme, um, you know, and not even financial assets, but things like you know the dollar itself is a, a Ponzi scheme. Everything is a Ponzi scheme. Um, it's impossible to know anything about economics or finance. Um, I don't think this is an intellectually coherent worldview, but it is one that resonates with some people who are definitely economically disenfranchised and who have found themselves on, I would say, you know, the uh, the business side of <laughs> a lot of um, income inequality. Um, and it's a very popular view of espousing people in sort of insular social media circles where it's kind of a post hoc rationalization for why they should gamble on crypto. Because, you know, if the stock market is just gambling and the dollar is a Ponzi, then why not dump all your money into a dog coin? Because it's fundamentally has exactly the same value as everything, which is zero. Yeah. And I, I was actually struck in conversations I had, especially with younger generation founders in Web3, hearing the narrative around the design, the architecture of some of their DeFi applications. Absolutely no problem in creating yield out of thin air. Essentially, you know, while not, not naming the Ponzi, replicating it and seeing absolutely no problem with it. And I think inherently, whether they recognized it consciously or subconsciously, they were implicitly validating this, saying that, you know what, if our overall system is one, then what's preventing us from actually launching our own system or set of applications that replicate this very same model? You know, and, and we'll talk a, a little bit more about, about that and, and sort of in the market fundamentalist view that you've also elaborated on later on. Before that, I'd like to take a step back. First and foremost, we're talking about a technology here. And, you know, it's interesting because we talked about the ideology being essentially a breakdown in trust, the trust that people would have in a system, a monetary system, society as a whole, right? And these, this impetus to substitute that with technology and saying technology is then an all be all cryptographic proof as this very basic concept solves for, for truth and trust. But you're spending a lot of time and as a computer scientist in your book, going through what are essentially the inherent weaknesses of the technology itself. You talk about issues with scalability. You talk about privacy security, compliance. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about, you know, as a computer scientist, again, your views on why the technology itself isn't all that great. And, and why is it in your mind that it is the case? Absolutely. So apart from the financial and economic arguments against crypto, I think you just have to look at the raw software itself and just go, go through your points. Um, a system in which when you lose your keys, you lose your money is a bad system by design. And the very sort of, I would say, libertarian principles that go into crypto that create its censorship resistance and sort of ability to exist outside of state controls are the things that give rise to the design of lose your keys, lose your money. And unfortunately, lose your keys, lose your money means that people like my grandmother will never be able to use crypto. My grandmother is never going to self-custody her crypto assets. Um, it's just a technical hurdle that most of the population should never ever have to do, uh, because it makes zero sense. My grandmother needs a you know a credit card. She needs somebody to call up at the bank, and she needs somebody who she can trust with her money. Um, and if crypto is creating this parallel financial system in which everybody has to become this you know uh, information security department of a bank in order to custody their own money. This is an absurd future that excludes most of the population. 
Now you could say, okay, maybe we'll just trust the crypto banks instead. Well, okay, so then you've created a system which basically completely replicates what we already have, except based on uh, this sort of private money, um, which has other economic problems. Um, so I would call that process a uh, re-centralization, in which in order to basically take the technology and scale it up to the masses, you ultimately end up recreating the very structure you aim to replace in the first place, at which point then what's the point? We already have dollars, we already have banks, we already have remittances, we already have wire transfers. These all work, maybe not perfectly, but they all work well enough that um, they're better off than lose your keys, lose your money. Um, so that's the fundamental argument against um, the key management, which I see as a fundamental, they would say it's a feature, but I say it's actually a bug of the system. The second would be the scalability problem. So the Bitcoin network can do between five to six transactions a second, um, which is about enough to run a small supermarket, uh, but not enough to run a small na you know, nation state. Um, and this arises out of the fact that um, like the Bitcoin network involves all these machines across the world. They're running these big complex data centers that crunch um, you know, pre-images to SHA-256 functions, which is this like hash function in math, um, to basically be wasteful by design. And the, Design of this is actually very cool. Um, imagine like you have all the cops in the city. Um, you know, there's going to be some corrupt cops, but like the probability of all the cops being corrupt simultaneously is very small. And so Bitcoin works exactly on the same principle: is that you run this lottery in which you basically pull one of these computers, and the odds of that one computer being malicious is very low. Um, and so that's how proof of work works. Um, there are other consensus mechanisms that scale up but ultimately they scale up by becoming more centralized again. Um, so things like Solana, um, things like um, some of the other systems, well, they're run by a pool of validators, which are mostly overseen by a single Delaware C corporation, right? So you're recreating basically a centralized payment processor, um, except with this sort of level of technical obfuscation um, and centralization that undermines the entire principles to begin with. So what you're, what you're saying is, is something's got to give at some point, right? It, it's sort of like, you know, the trilemma, you know, if you, if you go back to the cap theorem, if you go back to sort of what it's trying to achieve, if you're trying to solve for speed of transaction processing, you know, a la Solana, for example, you are going to lose in one of the main pillars of the ethos, which is decentralization. Yeah, the scalability trilemma is that you can't have scalability, censorship resistance um, simultaneously. Like those two completely come at different sides of the spectrum. Um, if you're going to have this system in which you want to be secure against a government actor, you're never going to be able to scale it up, um, except by becoming a very centralized system to begin with. And this is baked into the design of the distributed systems itself. Um, and this to me is one of the biggest problems. Um, so there have been a lot of like sort of so-called technical solutions to this problem, but ultimately these systems only scale by becoming more centralized and sort of recreating exactly the same kind of visa architecture. So like when El Salvador deployed their um, attempt at running Bitcoin nationally, they created this wallet system called the Shiva wallet. Well, Shiva wallet is one database, which basically has a giant ledger system denominated in Bitcoin, but ultimately you're contingent on trusting the one database run by the Shiva wallet. Um, so to me, this is recreating, pick your favorite, you know, uh, Venmo, Zelle or something, or you're basically recreating a bank, um, which point then um, there's really no point to the solution at all. So the solution is a problem. One of the, the, the key points you make, which I tend to subscribe to, by the way, 
is that if you look at traditional money transfer networks, both domestic, you know, within the US or other parts of the world and international, ultimately you have to solve for what they were designed to do, including ensuring at every step that there are controls in order to ensure compliance. This again is sort of antagonistic with the initial ethos of, of what crypto stands for, but then in order to solve for real life utilization and a compliance with fiscal sovereignty, control of, of money flows, it really doesn't achieve that. Barring to your point, specific implementation that that you know really aim to solve for that, that problem. Um, is that sort of the right way to, to, to look at it? Yeah, the third part of the technical issue is the lack of compliance. Um, so if you want to say you wanted to run like a remittance service, so you have dollars, and I want sterling, and you want to send money to each other, um, using a crypto as an intermediary doesn't actually give you anything because it's a lot faster to actually just do a direct swap between dollars and pound sterling rather than going through an intermediate step especially intermediate step denominated in some hyper-volatile crypto asset. And the reason that remittance networks and international wire transfers these days are not instant um, is often because there's a set of controls and rules that apply to international money movement, which means that you, know, you have to comply with you know, your customer requirements, anti-money laundering controls, um, and um, the banks themselves have limitations about who they can do business with. Um, and if crypto is, you know, basically circumventing those things, when those controls become layered on top of any kind of sensible business built on top of crypto, the advantages of crypto disappear entirely, and you end up recreating those entire same controls, which would incur exactly the same kind of compliance costs. And I think it's a bit naive to think that those controls or nation states are going to reconfigure themselves around crypto assets when money transmission laws are you know, a fundamental basis of monetary sovereignty. That leads us to, to talk a little bit about what you label as blockchainism, right? Which is forget about the cryptocurrencies, forget about the tokens. The technology in and of itself isn't going away. It's the plumbing, it's the rails that will ensure that we can cut out intermediaries, that we can essentially make our financial system more efficient. And that's sort of tied to the last statement you made around compliance. Tell us a little bit about what your perception of and the evolution over the last, let's say, decade of what blockchainism is. Um, you know, I think it's a great term. And again, for listeners to understand what's behind that. Absolutely. And this is mostly targeted at what we so-called like enterprise blockchain. So the, the canonical phrase is like, uh, not Bitcoin, blockchain is the underlying solution. And this is very popular amongst a lot of people in financial services, including the um, CEO of Goldman Sachs, who already very strange op-ed the other day in the Wall Street Journal, um, explaining how you know, Goldman is using you know a private blockchain to do a, um, a European bond uh, issuance between four counterparties to his bank, um, and you know we started from a very sensible thing like how can we take this like back office process that we're doing, which takes like four days to settle, and turn that into a much more efficient version of itself, and you know for first principles that's an interesting idea if you could do that, um, that would improve market efficiency, um, except in practice, what happens is that a lot of these projects become entangled with the crypto world, or they happen to use technologies from the crypto world, which are really not well suited. Um, because if ultimately Goldman Sachs is running this thing on some private server inside of some back office and some sort of, you know, private Goldman Sachs data center somewhere, um, there's really no point in having some sort of like censorship resistant network that, you know, state actors can, you know, interfere with because Goldman Sachs is literally like one might argue an arm of the United States at some point. Um, and so 
applying this technology internally um, is a bit strange and often it gets criticized as being a, a solution in search of a problem. But it is a very popular belief that blockchain and what's called the underlying technology can serve applications in financial services and supply chain and logistics um, and accounting. And the best argument I could say is that from, from the pure first principles technical argument against it, empirically, almost all of these projects have not borne out. Um, a blockchain is basically just a very, very slow database with some very, very quirky aspects to it. Um, and in almost every single circumstance, you'd be better off just using what's called like a very traditional centralized database to do the same kind of process. Except that's not very a sexy thing to do. People want to you know, build their careers and they want to do the next blockchain digital transformation project. And so these things get massive amounts of funding inside the strangest of places like the World Economic Forum, the World Bank, Goldman, JP Morgan. They all experiment with these things. Um, the biggest catastrophe recently was the Australian Stock Exchange, which tried to replace a large clearing system for like six years and they burnt like 145 million dollars trying to replace this one back office system with blockchain and it ultimately failed and every single project that i've seen from within our industry that has tried to do this um, has gone that way or been replaced by a centralized database so i'm not a big believer in blockchain the technology because empirically it's not some type of board group and you even go as far as saying that the notion of smart contracts, which was really brought to the fore with the advent of Ethereum, right? Ethereum is an attempt to essentially build this programmable money system, take it one step further and create this notion of uh, smart contracts. But you're, you're actually arguing that those contracts are on some level have a lot of vulnerabilities, that they're not actual contracts. And they have inherent flaws in that they rely on external sources of information, right? You call that the Oracle problem. You know, for listeners, again, the Oracles are, you know, these systems that can be interrogated to provide data from outside of the blockchain and inherently create a vulnerability, right? It's, it goes back to, you know, these dilemmas that you're trying to solve. At some point, you need to talk to the outside world. You need to have access to a source of data in which case it introduces a vulnerability. And you talk about you know, this box with six sides with one made of a sheet of paper and the rest made of concrete or metal. And so talk to a little bit about the vulnerability in your mind and the weakness of the smart contract architecture. So the thing you have to know about smart contracts is that they are neither smart nor are they contracts. And the big problem is that smart contracts have baked into their design um, this fundamental surface area of exploits. And the Oracle problem is probably the most glaring of those, which basically means that, okay, I want to create some sort of financial asset. It represents some sort of derivative and it uses, I don't know, the S&P as a benchmark. Okay, well, the S&P 500 is exogenous to the crypto world. Um, it would rely on a data feed from Bloomberg in order to get that data, at which point then I've brought Bloomberg into the trust boundary of my smart contract. Um, so my trustless system now depends on a third-party trusted data source um, which if Bloomberg had malicious intent, you know, could, you know, corrupt my system. Um, at which point then there's really no point in using the smart contract at all. I could basically just write a program which ran on a server, which talked to Bloomberg, which would do exactly the same function as the smart contract. Um, so to me, it just seems, you know, it undermines its own existence, right? If I have to depend on, you know, my trustless code depends on a trust boundary that includes, you know, financial institutions, which, you know, contradicts the entire premise of crypto all to begin with. But you also see this massive amount of exploits involved with these things. So 
So a smart contract is basically just a dumb piece of computer code that you send it a bunch of instructions and it says either you can do that thing or you can't do that thing based on a set of logic that a computer programmer writes. So the thing about computer programmers is that we suck. Um, we don't know how to write secure software and it shows up all the time. Think about your printer. Like the world runs on software that looks probably not much different than like your stupid printer, which fails to print all the time. Um, and the world is strung together with duct tape and chewing gum. Um, and you cannot write flawless code. And if you're depending on a smart contract in order to manage, you know, billions of dollars of liquidity, um, you are patently insane. Um, because all it takes is like a single hack in one of these, you know, pieces of logic in order for this to go very, very catastrophically and cause a massive amount of like systemic damage to, you know, this crypto economy. And imagine a smart contract. Um, the metaphor I like to use is if like if I just walk up to somebody on the street and say, you know give me your wallet, mate, and, and then they just give me your wallet. Is that actually a crime anymore? Uh, because a smart contract does exactly what you tell it to do, um, and it you know blows up, you know, one might argue the code is the law. Um, and that's why this entire premise of smart contracts rests on like technical absurdities. They're not smart, and they're not contracts, and they're a really terrible idea. You know, from my perspective, when people talk about the trust that they would put in a smart contract, I will respond to that saying, from the minute you actually deposit cryptocurrency or a token in a smart contract, you're actually relinquishing custody, right? And you're relinquishing custody, not to the software itself, but to the people who both design the software and also operate it, as well as people who have backdoor access to this code potentially and who can exploit that code. And so this whole notion that it is trustless, that you can blindly trust it because it is code is flawed in my opinion, right? And as long as we recognize that, then we can move ahead and establish what are the mechanism to ensure uh, trust in the same way that let's face it on a web two application, if I log into my bank account and I see a balance or my brokerage account, and I put on a trade, I quote unquote, trust the company that operates and writes this software to perform what I want it to do, right? Within the bounds of the laws, the regulation and so on and so forth. And it's always been a little puzzling to me that suddenly because it is in this decentralized world, suddenly these, these rules go out the window. So, you know, so we've, we've talked about the ideologies We've talked about, you know, in your mind, what is a, a very flawed technology, and, and we've elaborated on that. There are some big uh, proponents out there for crypto to be an alternative monetary system. And we talked a little bit about that when we talked about ideology, when we refer to this, this movement that is attempting to create this system of private money outside of the world that, that we've known that's literally evolved over centuries to create you know, banks, to create exchanges, to create stock markets, uh, to create um, you know, currency exchanges across nations, replace all of this with crypto. Let's turn a little bit about, uh, to talk about you know, what a monetary system is, right? It's a set of institutions and arrangements, right? That supports monetary exchange, right? It consists of money and payment systems. Right. And if we go back to history a little bit, you know, we know that we've been living in a, a world of fiat currency since the early 70s when, you know, the uh, accords of Bretton Woods that were established at the end of World War II to reestablish the conversion of, of the dollar with gold, gold standard, collapsed. Right. And from 1973 onwards, currencies around the world 
started floating, at least in developed countries, for those that didn't maintain pegs. And it's, it's interesting because since the emergence of crypto, we have gone back to, and you refer to it, to this sort of Austrian uh, school of thinking around, and again, it's, it's very libertarian in nature, and saying that the fiat money system encourages excess, right? And it's the debasement of currency that creates inflation and crypto as a monetary system prevents that because you are not letting governments or monetary authorities the ability to control the supply of money. You are not giving them the ability to debase currency. As you and I know, that's economically flawed as proven throughout the 20th century and the 21st century. And Ben Bernanke in particular has talked a lot about that and we can elaborate, but I wanna hear your thoughts on, on what I just said. Absolutely. So this is a very old line of thinking that's been prevalent in, especially in American uh, economic circles for a long time. Um, there are certainly what would be called heterodox schools of economics, which have ideas about um, the fact that the movement away from the gold standard was actually a, you know, a malign force on American prosperity, and that we should go back to these sort of commodity-based monies that we saw in the past, or even more extreme forms, we should have like private forms of money. Um, so I will come at this from, I'll lay my cards on the table here, I'm sort of more of a uh, Keynesian, um, and I'm also of the opinion that uh, money and the state are largely inseparable. Um, the demand for fiat money comes from taxation, um, and for its ability to be used um, as the basis for economic exchange. Um, so if you don't pay your taxes, then you know, men with guns will come to your house and bad things will happen until you pay your taxes. Um, and that generates a fundamental demand, which creates a circular flow of money through the economy. Um, and the efficiency of money is its ability to be used as a medium of exchange, um, a store of value in a unit of account. Um, now, people in crypto circles um, largely distrust um, government and financial institutions and that they believe that like the central banks have largely engaged in a set of practices um, which have been benefiting the wealthy um, and that this you know this fiat and this um, system that we've developed since Bretton Woods um, is prone to corruption um, and there's some basis for this things like you know economic um, quantitative easing for the last you know 10 years have largely driven up asset prices and you can draw a direct equivalence between quantitative easing and income inequality um, so there's like kernel of truth in there somewhere that the people can really actually latch on to um, but then they also tend to like synthesize that with this sort of like uh, monetarist philosophy which says that uh, inflation is always um, a product of the expansion of the money supply which to me is patently absurd because if you look at the last um, you know 12 years since the financial crisis the expansion of the, the m1 supply has grown massively and inflation has been like what maybe like one percent so like this to me seems to be like empirically disproven at this point um, but nevertheless it remains sort of at this um, you know this prevalent school of thought that's you know even um, popular in non-crypto circles as well um, and so the fact that a lot of crypto synthesizes with these sort of unfalsifiable claims uh, about macroeconomics gives people this sort of intellectual framework in which they can synthesize this idea that crypto is creating this um, financial system that's immune from government debasement. And they see this debasement as fundamentally the problem with the world today. That's important because when you think about redesigning the monetary system, this Phoenix notion that you mentioned before, 
right? That suddenly out of nowhere, you can create a monetary system that by magic is going to start working a lot better that will re-equalize wealth that will work as well for the haves as it does for the have-nots is, is really a fallacy, right? Because we can't escape fiscal sovereignty to your point, right? And, and, and if fiscal sovereignty crumbles, then ultimately we have mayhem on the streets. Is that also your thought process? I agree with a large portion of that. And I think um, what I don't want to come across as is like defending the policies of the central banks um, for the last 10 years, because I think there's been a lot of mistakes um, that have been done, especially around um, consistently, they've usually chosen the worst um, outcomes in many situations. So um, all I want to say is that basically, I think that there's a, a kernel of truth in some of the claims about quantitative easing for the last 10 years, um, which definitely resonates with some people about their current situation and economic inequality. Um, and the problem is that that sort of kernel of truth uh, can be sort of blown out of proportion and used to justify the sort of Phoenix solution, which we should burn everything down. And what they've supplanted it with is a form of commodity-based money, which if you know anything about, you know, um, the history of commodity-based monies was subject to extreme deflationary spirals and shocks and was largely contributed with, um, you know, the Great Depression propagating, you know, from the United States to Europe. Uh, and so that was a far more brittle system than anything that the harm of the last, you know, 20 years of um, mismanagement of uh, money supply has actually done. Um, so, yes, I'll put Winston Churchill and say that, you know, the foreign financial system is the worst thing except for everything else that's been tried. The main architect of quantitative easing, Ben Bernanke, studied the Great Depression for a career as, as an academic and saw firsthand how commodity-based monetary system resulted in the inflexibility that led to far greater deflation than could have happened in the 30s. And, you know, through his exercise, which I encourage anyone to read, the, you know, his, his seminal paper on the topic shows that leaving the gold standard, the US and the UK actually fared better in their recovery from the Great Depression than the countries that actually remain on the gold standard. So food for thought for, you know, this notion that commodity-based uh, or crypto-based monetary system, um, this whole notion that one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, um, you know, in my opinion, at least is false. One, you know, one Bitcoin equal, equals the price that someone's willing to pay for it in, a do in dollars, right? In fiat. And now that we've covered its flaws as a the monetary system and, and in the theory, um, as an investable asset, you talk a, about valuation problems. And I, I want to discuss this a little bit because this is where it gets very delicate, right? You're basically talking about the standards by which one would value assets in a traditional finance and, and economic terms. And you're saying that crypto fundamentally relies on the greater fool theory, which is you are going to hold it with the hopes that someone is going to buy at a higher price without consideration for an inherent intrinsic value. As we know, securities such as stocks and bonds are a claim on assets of businesses that can or, or not generate cash flows. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on the valuation framework and where you see most of the flaws there? Certainly. Let's add some context here. We switched away from the narrative that crypto is money switched over to the narrative that crypto is an investment. And I should qualify that by saying that those are opposite things. Those are opposite financial instruments. So money, good form of money is the three things I mentioned. It's a unit of account, store of value, and um, a medium of exchange. 
which means that its value has to be relatively stable relative to like a basket of domestic goods. So things like the dollar, pound currencies, um, and things like Apple stock are investments. Uh, you want your investments to go up and you want your currency to remain largely stable or you have a small amount of inflation generally. Um, so how do we value crypto as an investment then? So where you normally value investments like stocks and bonds in terms of uh, their discounted future cash flows. Um, so a stock um, is a claim on the future cash flows of a productive company um, and their assets. Um, a bond is you know, the repayment of a, you know, a coupon over time with the principal. Um, so with crypto, um, there is no underlying cash flows. Um, it is not a legal claim on anything. So its market value is purely contingent on what the next person will pay for it. Uh, and then that value will be contingent on what that person will pay for it and so on and so on in perpetuity forever. Um, and so there's a really great paper by this um, statistician, Nassim Taleb, in which he deconstructs um, the value of Bitcoin from a sort of quantitative finance perspective. Um, and I find this argument very compelling because crypto rests on what's called the greater fool theory, um, which you know, the value of it is only what you think the next person will play. So it's a pure psychology game in which you're expecting this like chain of fools that will continue to buy this asset in perpetuity you know, into the future forever. Um, and, you know, economic arguments that rest on infinities um, tend to be rather specious. And so the fundamental question is, how do we value crypto? So um, if it's, you know, if it's not money, um, it's not a store of value, it's not a hedge against inflation, it's not an uncorrelated asset, it's a vehicle for basically pure naked speculation, much like a collectible or, you um, a, you know, like a beanie baby, uh, you know, a tulip bulb, except it's a intangible financial asset with no underlying cash flows that trades purely on the theory of the greater pool. And that is a very pathological thing in the space of financial instruments. We never actually had something like this before. The closest thing I can compare it to is like a zero coupon perpetual bond. <laughs> Basically a piece of paper that trades in perpetuity doesn't actually pay a coupon, but the price of it could possibly be non-zero. Although fundamentally, there's no reason why that zero coupon perpetual bond should have a non-zero market value. So my claim is that the fair value or the so-called fundamental value of all of these crypto assets is zero because they don't represent a claim on any legal or any kind of productive enterprise. There's no underlying cash flows. Um, and as a collectible, um, it's impossible to value that in rational terms. So what about, you know, when you hear individuals such as you know, Greg Foss talking about Bitcoin being credit default swaps on the United States of America, essentially an insurance against debasement. What credence do you give to this argument? It's a credit default swap on the United States of America. Yeah, I've heard this one, like basically crypto is a synthetic hedge against the class of all financial assets that have cash flows, which is basically like what he's saying. Goes to great lengths to demonstrate this through a paper quantitatively, how he actually has a pricing theory that demonstrates that you know Bitcoin should be trading much higher if it were to reflect the probability of default of the United States. So basically, you're buying this as a hedge against the United States, like as like you think if the United States defaults on its debt, Bitcoin has become the like the reserve currency. Is that basically the exposure? Correct. Correct. Okay. As a person who, <laughs> I'll play my cards here. Like I 
this to me seems like if you're betting on the economic collapse of the world's superpower, I mean, what lies on the other side of that looks like chaos and you should probably be investing in beans and guns rather than some sort of like digital commodity, which rests on a bunch of like, you know, quantitative arguments that it's a crit default swap against, you know, the implosion of the world's, you know, all of macro finance, basically. So to me, you know, I, I don't even predict those kind of outcome scenarios because they seem to rest on absurdities and catastrophes that, would be impossible to know what would happen on either side of it. So no, I don't buy that argument. What about systems such as Ethereum, where you actually do have the notion of a yield, right? You do have a set of economic incentives tied to your participation. In other words, by staking your tokens and, and hence helping the system work, right? But being essentially the fuel that powers this computing infrastructure, you're getting a reward from doing that. So whilst I think the challenge is that you don't actually have a claim on anything, right? When you own Ethereum, you don't even have a right to those, those cash flows. They're sort of promised in the coded tokenomics that are decided by its own sort of governance system. But, but the interesting thing is you, you do not have a claim on assets. Like, you know, you do, you know, if you own all of Ethereum, I guess you could seize the entire network, but is that even realistic? So how do you think about that framework? where you do have cash flow. So in essence, you know, you use a term structure of interest rates that you could discount the value of Ethereum in perpetuity, right? Assuming it is a perpetuity. So I've thought about this model actually extensively. And I find it one of the more intellectually interesting ones to consider. Um, so the Ethereum network basically issues this token. This token is used for its consumptive value as used in smart contracts because the smart contracts themselves are actually powered by the Ethereum token to interact with Ethereum products you need to use the Ether token. So in some sense, if you go to a, a casino, uh, you have to go buy casino chips if you want to play the games. Um, so the problem is then what is the consumptive value of interacting with the Ethereum smart contracts and I've never heard a compelling use case because of the reason that I mentioned before about um, what smart contracts are actually used for. Um, what is the compelling use case is that they are very useful for gambling. Um, so if you imagine the entire Ethereum ecosystem as like a game of Monopoly, right? Okay, like we can play a game of Monopoly. We can have this like you know Monopoly money. Um, we can all go around. You may become very very attached to your little you know. Broadway and your railroads and maybe you had like develop a cult of personality around the thimble, right? But at the end of the day, um, it's all self-contained within the Monopoly game. And you can even create like a synthetic game where you stack Monopoly games on top of each other. And you can call that DeFi or something, right? But at the end of the day, um, all you're doing is intrinsically internal to this entire ecosystem. And what you can do is basically stake real money on the outcome of the Monopoly game but at the end of the day, that's basically just people circulating real money, betting on um, some outcome of some sort of synthetic internal game. And there's a term for that. That's called gambling. <laughs> um, and to me, if crypto or Ethereum's entire purpose is to create this sort of unregulated offshore casino, and they just happen to sell the casino tokens, and those casino tokens happen to float on some secondary market, okay, that's interesting. But ultimately, you've just recreated gambling. That's an interesting take. You have said that in your mind, crypto really is one giant gambling scheme. And you're saying that's probably the most rational explanation for its existence and continued existence. Despite the fact that you don't necessarily agree that it's a net positive for society, you actually think that that might be the one and only 
rational explanation for why it should remain in existence or why it is in existence to begin with? I think it's certainly the most coherent explanation, because if you look at all of the economic arguments around it, they all rest on or reduced down to absurdities. So, um, you know, it's obviously not money. It's obviously not a sensible investment. But if you create these sort of purely speculative, purely narrative driven assets that just go up and down based on random sentiment, you've created a fun game for people to bet on. And if it was just being sold to the public as a form of like, oh, let's gamble on the price of Dogecoin today. And that's a fun thing we can do with our mates. Like, just like I bet on like the Premier League or like a football match or I go to Las Vegas. Now, gambling in and of itself is not necessarily a problem, so long as you treat it as consumption. And it's also walled off from the financial system, right? If I go deposit, you know, $100 with JP Morgan, JP Morgan is not taking my deposits and like going to Vegas and like let her all rip on Red 17. Um, they can't do that. Those are fundamentally segregated activities. Um, and so if crypto is purely being marketed to the retail public as a fun sort of gambling game, albeit a weird one, which is sort of this simulacrum of the stock market, but it's a stock market detached from any productive activity or any real things in the economy. Okay, that's a casino. There's, if you're not, markets exist to balance the supply, goods and services. And if you remove the goods and services, you're left with pure naked speculation. And that's just gambling. Um, now, the problem is, is that if crypto was just that, I probably would just shut up and stop talking about it. But it's not just that. You have pension funds investing in it. You have, you know, financial institutions, you know, trying to get exposure to it. Um, it has become much more than just that. Um, and I think it's the most coherent story to explain it because gambling and people's addiction to risk um, is definitely um a real thing and um, it explains a lot of the behavior among like day traders engage in oftentimes the same kind of practices except the difference is the underlying assets they're trading actually have some real intrinsic value with crypto that's just all removed and it's just pure naked speculation i think it's a, a very compelling argument and 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 you're saying essentially the firms that build the infrastructure the firms that facilitate trading and market making the trading firms the hedge funds the venture capitalists the builders are to, you know take aside let's just say tomorrow we said okay no pension money is going into this right it is essentially one giant global virtual casino right and that could be what the metaverse is really it's like this giant video game where you know you could get hurt but it's your responsibility to navigate this sort of dyor right and it's outside of the financial system but you're saying that again the firms that enable that rightfully so see it as a way to make money and trading for the sake of trading, and they're enabling this giant gambling scheme. And you're saying, again, that's that's a rational description or an explanation of what is going on. Tell me a little bit about, and, and I know this is your opinion, and, and I, I don't mean to be controversial here, why you think it's a net negative for society in general. I mean, I view it as a form of social appeasement. You know, people go to Vegas to have fun. Yes, uh, some people are addicted to gambling on some level. Why, why do you think it's a net negative, ultimately? Well, because of the misrepresentation. So at least here in Britain, uh, there's this very clear demarcation between um, what you can sell as gambling and what you can sell as an investment. And those two can never intermingle. And you literally cannot use the word investment. Um, and the fact that crypto presents almost exactly like a broker when you log into like say FTX, like it was presenting exactly like you would trade like, you know, if I log into Schwab or something, you know, like it has, it's almost exactly the same interface. So this level of kind of like, 
deception involved with this because you're not investing in any kind of productive activity. Um, you're investing in something which is inherently negative sum. Most people will lose money on it. Um, and if you remove the misrepresentation, you remove the sort of notions that this is creating a new financial system, you remove the notion that's investment entirely, and just that it's a casino, just like, you know, Betfair or like online poker or something. Sure. I mean, we let people go to the casino. We let people, you know, do self-destructive things all the time in our society because, you know, that's, that's we live in a free society. People can do that. Um, however, it becomes a problem when it becomes systemically important to the economy. Um, and, you know, if, if family offices are involved, if hedge funds are involved, there's no way this is not going to have some knock-on effects to the greater economy. Um, and in order for you to squeeze all of the institutional money out of it, um, that would require basically a level of regulation that I think would cause most of the crypto industry to collapse. And this other side of the crypto industry, which is the fact that a lot of these tokens are not pure gambling products. They are thinly disguised equities that people are using to raise money to circumvent the Securities Act um, to create basically this proxy for equity in a startup, except it's equity, which is not subject to the same restraints and registration requirements with the SEC. You can sell it to anybody in the global, in, in the world. Um, there's no accreditation requirements um, and there's no, um, you know, um, liquidation periods. Um, there's no, you know, controls on any of it. And so that's why it's really appealing to some venture capitalists. But ultimately this kind of freewheeling laissez-faire system is what we tried back in the 1920s and didn't end very well back then. Um, and so that side looks inherently pathological because it's recreating some financial disasters of the past and they ended exactly the same way that it's ending right now. Absolutely. I mean, in some ways, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. What we're witnessing in crypto right now is, is almost like a play-by-play -play repeat of, uh, of some of the events that we saw in, in traditional financial markets. Uh, you know, there's an argument to be made that using the sufficiently decentralized argument to be able to issue securities, having, you know, decentralized autonomous organizations run businesses to, again, circumvent the notion of an enterprise that's centrally governed is, is really, you know, an attempt to circumvent regulation, as you said. It's acted as a vibrant laboratory for experiments. The issue becomes when those experiments are had at the expense of the unregarding or the misinformed uh, retail investor, which, you know, it seems like it's, it's been the case more so than, than, than not. To sort of wind down the conversation, and, and I, I certainly, I could spend another five hours talking to you if, if you had the time, and I know we can't. So that's, uh, if you had your say, and I know you've been vocal about it, what do you think is the right path forward? Are you advocating or militating to essentially completely curtail activity within the crypto industry, you speak to regulators and like, what do you tell regulators? What do you tell them in your opinion is the best path forward? So there's a multitude of perspectives on this. I will give you mine. There are other definitely well-informed uh, views in the FinReg community. Um, most of what is being sold in crypto today looks like securities. Um, they are investments of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profits to derive from others, uh, which is the four prongs of the so-called Howey test, which is the, the case that the American law used to determine like when a financial asset is a security. Um, and if you look at most of these companies, um, they're, they're funded by venture capitalists. They have a pre-mine. Um, they're a Delaware corporation. 
they create a speculative asset as a way of raising capital for their platform or their protocol. Um, that to me looks like equity issuance by another name. Um, and we probably don't want to do that um, because, well, <laughs> we, we did that in the 1920s and, and badly. Um, we have a system of laws which have largely resulted in prosperity for the United States since we put them in place. Um, Well-regulated lit markets um, enable capital formation um, and trust and security in markets. Um, and markets like crypto generally tend to destroy trust um, because people don't know where their money is going to go to. Um, in your, your quote before, like most basic requirements around disclosures about the, you know, the uh, directors of a company. If you replaced, you know, the startup, which has a bunch of very, you know, lit, you know, disclosures about who the people involved with it are, with you know, a, you know, some guy in Siberia whose only exposure is, you know, a monkey on Twitter and who's anonymous and tweets, you know, you know, eggplant rocket ship to the moon. You know, that's your director of your startup. You know, and you're gonna let him raise, you know, two hundred million dollars from you know U.S. persons. Um, I see a lot of problems with that as a model. Um, and so to me, the way you curtail this thing is basically treating these things as the securities they are. Um, you put in investor requirements, accreditation requirements, and disclosures. Um, and then, you know, if you just regulated them as securities, a lot of the problems go away. Um, you can let people raise capital this way. It's a very strange way to do it. But to me, um, the problem is that there's not a lack of capital floating around the United States. There's so much dry powder. Um, and so like if people are raising money this way, it's because they're doing things that are probably illegal or they want to avoid regulation entirely. Um, and if the pseudo equity side of crypto is basically just brought into the remit of the Securities Act and the Securities Exchange Act, and it was treated as some digital security, I mean, that's probably fine. And then you have the sort of more gambling side of crypto, the Dogecoins, where there's no underlying enterprise. People just want to, you know, gamble on how many people think that Dogecoin's a good thing today. Okay, sure. I mean, we can gamble on the Premier League. So why not? I mean, so that to me seems to pass forward. Um, enforce the existing securities laws and regulate the non-productive side of this as gambling. And then a lot of problems go away, really. Have you found that regulators are receptive or do they put this at the top of their, I mean, those that are watching, you know, obviously securities markets and, and financial markets, do you find that they're receptive to this argument? Do you find that it's a priority for them, especially in light of what we've seen this year and some of the, the collapses that we've seen, or do you think it's still far-fetched to expect any resolution on that front? There are two camps of people I talk to in terms of bureaucrats. Um, there's the ones that are complete non-believers. They think the entire thing is digital tulips, um, that there's very little there. Um, that's a very widespread view, especially here in Europe. Um, they're oftentimes very hesitant to act because it's there's not a lot of political upside to curtailing this stuff. Because if you look at the size of crypto, uh, let's say the entire market size is just half a billion dollars, right? You know, that's like what the operating budget for like the U.S. military for like one week or something. Or like, look at the size of U.S. capital markets. Like, what's the market cap of Apple? Like $3 trillion. So like, you know, crypto is like a bug on the proverbial windshield of U.S. capital markets. Um, it just doesn't rise to the level of systemic importance for a lot of them to act enough. 
And then there's the ones that don't want to step on the so-called innovation. Um, and oftentimes there's a very rhetorical trick here. So they say, oh, well, Goldman Sachs is doing a private blockchain swap uh, for you know bonds. And so we don't want to curtail crypto because that will stop Goldman Sachs from doing something that they've been doing for 35 years. Um, and that's the trick that you know the lobbyists and the politics um, the lobbyists have told bureaucrats that like you know if you step on crypto you can stop on this you're gonna you know, squash innovation. And it's a very good trick. It works on them. But unfortunately when you look at most of crypto, um, you know, where is the Google, where's the Microsoft, where's the Amazon of crypto? All they see are a bunch of exchanges and a lot of Ponzi schemes and very few coherent use cases. And those two camps, like, is it the new internet or is it digital tulips? Or broadly speaking, the two camps in government at the moment, and they're sort of fighting with each other. That's very helpful. And I suspect, you know, look, you know, the most vocal supporters, ironically, in, in the last nine months have been traditional Wall Street firms, uh, to your point about David Solomon's editorial in the Wall Street Journal, the Apollos of the world, KKRs, Blackstone, Citadel. Again, to your point, these are not large numbers by any stretch of the imagination when it comes to traditional finance. And so it's a cheap option to keep on and see what happens. And I suspect that as liquidity gets drained out of the system following some of the collapses, it's going to refocus the efforts on the tech itself. And for all its flaws, I think there will continue to be at least attempts at innovating. You know, I think regulation is going to be a long road because of the inherently non-systemic aspect of it. To your point, the market cap of all crypto assets is yet too small to matter too much. And quite frankly, we'll see how the FTX uh, debacle unravels. But I don't think that it matters to the electorate as much yet. And, and for regulation to really step in, it has to become an electoral issue, right? After 2008, we talked about a potential collapse of the US and world financial system. Uh, people's houses were losing value. People were on the streets. People were getting laid off in droves as a result of, of the crisis. You're not seeing this in this case, right? And so I always like to think about does it really matter to a politician to stake their political capital on this? It's going to boil down to how relevant it is to their electorate. And I just don't think that it's relevant yet and potentially might never be, right? So I think, um, I think that's probably how it's going to play out. Stephen, really enjoyed the conversation. I continue to think that you're incredibly eloquent. And whilst uh, you know, I may or may not agree with everything you said, I'm really happy I gave you a platform to express it, to vocalize it. I enjoyed reading your book. I, I think a lot of people enjoyed listening to you and, and the compelling arguments you make. So I want to thank you for your time today. Thanks, Maxime. It was a lovely conversation today. Hopefully, uh, the readership's got some different perspective than they might get from some other uh, more, more bullish proponents of the space. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management, LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. 